God, how long do I have to cry out for help before you listen? How many times do I have to yell, help, murder, police, before you come to the rescue? Why do you force me to look at evil, stare trouble in the face day by day, anarchy and violence break out, quarrels and fights all over the place, law and order fall to pieces, justice is a joke. The wicked have the righteous hamstrung and stand justice on its head. Today we're in Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them to Habakkuk chapter 1 as we dive into God's Word together. I'm going to ask you this question. Habakkuk. Yeah. Habakkuk chapter 1. And let me ask you this question. Ever wonder if God cares? Always. I do. Habakkuk wondered that. As we see, as we look into this passage, every thought you were talking to God and wondering if he's actually listening. I'm not going to lie about it. I have. And if you come to me and say, oh, I've never thought that, never wondered it, you just lie to me and you need to go repent. Okay? (laughs) Everybody, if you are a follower of Christ, you wonder and you doubt. Even Jesus' own disciples doubt it. As do we do on a regular basis. The Bible consistently affirms that God is good. We just sung about how God is good. That he is holy and just. But the world is evil, unholy, and unjust. The wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. So how can we understand these conflicting realities? How do we come to this place and and read the word of God and look all around us and go, what in the world is going on, God? Are you even there? Are you listening? Do you care? And that's what Habakkuk is wrestling with. That's what he, as we read through Habakkuk, that's what he encourages us to come to God with, the reality of, of our emotions, the rawness. There's a whole genre in the Bible called lamentations, which are, 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 are lamenting. They're, they're, they're crying out. And some of them don't even have, uh, they don't even rectify at the end. They don't resolve at all. Just crying out to God. So read with me Habakkuk chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me and strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the bitter and hasty nations, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. 
Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. The horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand, and kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh out of every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the, wicked, when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, his sacrifice to, therefore he sacrifices to his net. And makes offerings to his dragnet. But by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. So he then to keep so he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever, I will take my stand at my watch posts, and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me. I wait, I will I will answer concerning my complaints. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not die. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, the soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. This is the word of the Lord. Who is Habakkuk? The reality is we have really no idea. There's very little information on him. All we have is what we have right here. Habakkuk. We don't know much. We know that he was a prophet. And a prophet was an eyeball-to-eyeball type speaker. He was a guy who would get right in your face and tell you how it is. You know, some of your favorites. Some of the people that you really enjoy to have in your life all the time. He was that man. But he would come and he would talk about the right... Uh, he would come and talk about the wicked and prosperous and the righteous and suffering and... He would come and and, and preach to the people in their day. But this message, even though it was 2,400 years ago, is a message that is very applicable to you and to me. There's no one in this room who hasn't been touched by suffering. There's no one in this room who hasn't at one point cried out to God, what is going on? Are you listening? Do you care? So you might ask yourself, why are we doing this? Well, the first reason is, well, because God wrote it. It's in the Bible, so we're going to talk about it. 
you know, and enough, this message can, came to real people at a, at a time of crisis. And even though society may have changed, human nature hasn't. We're still the same. People still need to know that God is at work in historical situations. People continue to face the problem of sin. And Habakkuk talks about that. Habakkuk was wrestling with his very same questions. God, why won't you do something? That's what he says. In these first few verses, the most, most prophets start with a word from or about God, but Habakkuk starts talking right at him. He asks God straight up the question that we all think. This is something that I like to think of. The Psalms, I, a few years ago, I was reading through the Psalms, and this really hit me hard. So often, I grew up in a world, in a church society, where we kind of weren't allowed to complain to God. That's kind of how I was raised. That's how I tra- treat my children, too. Stop complaining. <laughs> the Psalms doesn't say that. The Psalm actually, the Psalm writers encourage us to come to God. And Habakkuk does the same thing. He's coming to God. In Psalm 13, verse 1, it says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He says. So Habakkuk's question is, why doesn't God do something about the evil that is in this world? There's a tension of unanswered prayer that is setting the tone of this whole book. If you read it through, I encourage you, if you haven't, do it. Read it through. How long shall I cry? There aren't any new issues that are coming up here. These are issues that are coming up over and over again. It's like Habakkuk has been screaming in his pillow every night. You been there? I'm tired. I've been crying out to you. I'm tired. Oh, cry. And he says, I cry to you. Why haven't you acted against this evil in this world? These abuses that are, that are against the weak within our society. See, Habakkuk is observing things within the people of God. The problem that Habakkuk has here is that the people of God are not acting like the people of God. This is not about external coming into Judah. This is not Assyria coming in anymore. This is the people of God treating each other like dirt. And Habakkuk's had enough. God, these are your people. Why aren't you doing anything about it? People are hurt. People are suffering. I'm crying out to you. I'm repeating over and over again. Why do you make me see iniquity, he says. You make me look at what is happening. You show me in the news. You show me as I I drive through downtown London. You show me all the time all the brokenness that is in this world. Why aren't you doing something about it? He says, you make me see, but you don't do anything about it. Destruction and violence. Society is in free fall. It is in decay, and you, God, just don't care about it. You're not troubled by it. What are you doing? And he even says that the law is paralyzed. Even the law is numb. It's limp, has no power. The law that you have given is powerless to address all the problems 
that you see around. And you've got to think of it as a courtroom. It's a, it's a picture of a courtroom where the guilty party brings so many false witnesses to court that the judge eventually gives a false verdict. It's just inundated with bad and evil. And then the justice system collapsed. This happens in earthly courtrooms all too often. The situation calls for intervention from a divine judge who is always just and guarantees justice for his people and his world. The problem is that such divine intervention does not come. So the cry comes, How long, O Lord? All this is what causes Habakkuk to cry out to God. So let me ask you, how are you feeling this morning? Feeling a little beat up? Tears gone? Ever think that God is just sitting up there and not doing anything? Wonder, maybe you're wondering if there's even a God. Maybe, because how could there be? How could there be an all-powerful, all-loving God in the human experience of suffering and evil in this world? Clearly there's evil. So an omnipotent and omnibenevolent God of the Bible cannot exist. Bad things happen to good people all the time. For the wicked surround the righteous, he says. So God is either non-existent or less good or less powerful than what the Bible talks about. You see, the Bible and how it does not shy away from our questions. I think this gives us a little bit of a lesson how we are to interact with other people. So often someone comes to our, with us with doubts, and the first thing we do is we pounce on them. But God is so gracious in this, because God gives an answer. God's first response, I'm at work. I'm already at work. God sends some strange instruments against his unfaithful people in verses 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. Don't see that this is God. and We don't even see that this is God until verse 12. But when verse 12 comes along, we see that this is God talking here. These people aren't in the position that he's talking about here. They're not in a position of power. They, they, they're not even on the radar any, right now. And God says, you're not even going to believe what I'm going to do. They're not going to believe what he's going to do because, A, uh, they're not even on the radar anymore. B, also, as he describes, they're just as wicked as whatever else is going on in the people of God. And God comes along in verse 6, I am rising up. I am raising up. The sovereign God of Israel controls every power in history, even the aggressive nations like the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. They are a bitter and hasty nation. God already knows who they are. He knows their character. He knows what they're going to do. He knows everything about them. And God says, I'm going to raise them up. I'm going to raise them up to deal with the problem within my people. God is well aware of who these people are. They are pride. They rely upon their own strength. All these things are offensive to God who alone deserves our worship. And Habakkuk had asked God to save. Right? Now, so the first part, God, save us. Save your people. Do something. But instead, he is bringing a powerful nation that scoffs at kings and does not recognize God's authority. 
for their own might is their God, as, as Habakkuk says, as God says. How could God use such a violent and guilty people against violence within Judah? This wasn't the response that Habakkuk was looking for. You ever been there before? God, why aren't you doing something? And God says, I am doing something. And I'm like, oh, wait, that's not what I want. I've been there. This is going to hurt a little bit. I am not going to enjoy this one bit. You cry out to God, he gives an answer, and he responds to you. You know, the Bible describes evil as something that God allowed but never condones. For the sake of our free will, all through history, God has taken steps to limit the influence of evil. And this is even an example of that. It all sums up in the cross, doesn't it? We talked about this once before. If you take the cross away, all you have is this God who doesn't care and can't do anything. If you forget the cross, if you forget the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're toast. We're out in the lake with a boat with no paddle or whatever the saying is. God himself took the consequence of our sins so every person can have access to forgiveness and salvation. As a result, all sin, all evil, all suffering will someday be completely ended. When I take the cross out, there is no hope. Scripture, you know, this is beyond the philosophical or theological aspects of this issue. Scripture in and of itself goes a long way to neutralize the power of the problem of evil. See, in this first section, Habakkuk's first complaint and, and, God's un, un, has, and then we see God's unexpected response. As we see the sins of immorality and lawlessness and idolatry all around him, Habakkuk questions God and wonders, why do you idly look at the wrong, why aren't you doing anything? With all that is happening with Israel's corruption, all that's happening around and externally, Habakkuk begins to doubt whether there will be justice against evil and mercy for the faithful. But it is in the Bible that we see throughout history, God's children, like Habakkuk, have often expressed this very complaint. Look at Job. Wondered why. He wondered why God seemed absent amid his difficult circumstances. And Israel cried out during his wilderness wandering, Is the Lord among us or not? In Exodus 17. See, God's response was not what the prophet ever could imagine. See, God is with his people. That's what he's saying here. God is saying to his people, I am with you. He will help them. And he will bring them justice but he will do it through the violent and haughty nation of Babylon. Even Habakkuk is confused. I am. God challenges his faith, and he challenges mine, and he challenges yours as well. God can bring about good from evil, and this is a theme that echoes down from the whole Bible, such as Joseph's statement to his brothers in Genesis 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. May we, like, that's a powerful statement. Like, think about that. That guy, uh, I have my own interpretations of him. I think of him as a brat, okay? He may have deserved all those things. I don't know. The fact is this. He comes along at the end of his life with all the things that have happened to him, and he says, what you meant for evil, God means for good. God is sovereignly in control. 
We see the amazing wisdom of God on that cross. We see justice and mercy and how it meets there. Jesus receives the penalty that that the justice of God requires for sin. And we receive through faith God's mercy and forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life. This is why we can continue to have faith amid frustrations. God providentially uses people and events both purposefully and personally. God is sovereign. But Habakkuk still struggles with God's response, and he comes back with another complaint. God, do you approve of justice and justice? See, Habakkuk's complaint is in response to God's answer in verses 12 to 2 verse 1. Habakkuk can't accept God's answer. I'm not satisfied here, God. Not quite. I'm not letting you off the hook. Habakkuk is struggling. And he comes out, this is very interesting, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? You know the question there? He's questioning a lot of things, right? But you know what's something he's sure of? The character of who God is. He's got a lot of questions. But one thing he's sure of is that God is an everlasting God and that he is holy. And further on, and later on in that verse, we see that he is a rock. He is sure of the character of God. Even though he is struggling and he has unanswered questions, he is reminding himself of the things that he knows. You are everlasting. You are holy. You are my rock. My God, my holy one. There's a personal relationship that turns confession into conviction. That isn't, this isn't the ends. And in verses 12 to 13, he goes on. Essentially, Habakkuk's saying, I'm really puzzled here. How can you allow sin to keep going unchecked? How can you use the Babylonians to punish a less wicked people? Even though Israel is bad, there's still a remnant of faithful people in your church. How can you do that? And in verse 14 and following, God, he says, you, God, make mankind like fish of the sea. God, if you allow this, he says, you are responsible for what is happening. What a bold statement. Everything points, though, to the final question that we see in verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net, Babylon? Is, is Babylon then going to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk's coming to Jesus, God and saying, God, if you claim to be just, how in the world could you let injustice further? If you're holy, how in the world could you allow an unholy nation to come and punish your people? Wicked defeating wicked still means wicked is there, is what Habakkuk is saying. So he says that question in verse 17. Will this just keep going on and on? Is there no end to this? In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And I will take my stand at my watch post. All right, God, I've done my bit. It's kind of like one of those things where you're having an argument with your kid and they think they want an argument. And they kind of like stand up back there with their arms crossed. It doesn't matter how old your kid is. I don't care. They all do it. And they're all loose. Because one way or another, they're in your house and they lose. 
I will take my stands at my watch post. What an indignant thing to say. So Habakkuk takes his stand. He's waiting for the response that God will have for his complaint. Habakkuk is challenging God to show his justice. And as a prophet, he now waits for a message to bring to the people. All right, God, I got my question. I've given you my question. Now give me an answer. Give me an answer. And God responds in verse verse 2. Write the vision. He says, what I have to say, says God, is important. Write it down. Let's look at the attitude there. And he goes on to verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. For still the vision awaits his appointed time. I have cried out a lot and wondered what God has in store. I have a friend right now who texted me before I came up here to preach saying his wife sent it to me, which means you know it's bad. Pray for him. And I'm going... Wait. God's word says wait. For still the vision waits its appointed time. Not all that I'm saying here, God says, will happen immediately. It will happen. Wait. Be patient. God describes these people as puffed up. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him which is also a message to us. God is creating a, 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 a uh, whatever the word is, dark and white. There we go, contrast. <laughs> His soul is puffed up and it is not upright within him. An arrogant man who thinks he can do it on his own. That's what God's talking about. He goes on to describe what that arrogant man ends up doing in verses 5. They're never satisfied. Did you see that? His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. What? So essentially saying, if you're going to come at any point in your life and think you've got it all under control and you're going to do it on your own, I don't need God, you're in trouble. All you have is death, and you'll never be satisfied. Never. But the end of verse 4 is a passage that most of us know very well because Paul quotes it himself. But the righteous shall live by faith. It's a hard part. God's people will show their faith in a merciful God by seeking Him and His plans. As Habakkuk has done already, they will turn from other gods and those who follow them. They know God's rules, they know that God rules over the whole world from His holy temple. So they will stand when the wicked fall. See, Habakkuk learned to live by faith in the one in whom he put his faith. He was saved by grace through faith and left a faithful legacy that still instructs us today. 
Those who follow his example find God still able to save and support regardless of our circumstances. So what? I don't know about you. This is important. You can't even read that, can you? It says this, God calls us to faithfully wait based on the knowledge of who he is. What do we learn from Habakkuk? Don't stop. Don't stop praying. Never stop praying. We continue to pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Asking for a resolution to this tension and for the faith that we need to endure what is happening right now. So the question for you is this, what are you living by today? Are you living by the one whose soul is puffed up or are you living by faith? What does it mean to live by faith? For you, O Christian, for you, O brother and sister, what does that mean? It's the faith that comes through what Jesus has done on the cross for you and for me. Do you understand what God has saved you from? Like, if you truly understood the horrificness, the, the, how, did, how awful hell is, and how bad the Bible describes hell to be, and how God, through His grace and His mercy, paid the price for you so that when you repented and believed, you may have life, that you were saved from that hell and brought into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you understood that, that is a game changer. Hell is not a nice place. And I'm being incredible for Jesus right now. It is, it is indescribable. Jesus calls it a gnashing of teeth. It's so bad. That's where we all go. Because we are all traitors to the holy God. But then Jesus comes and pays the price that, that we should have paid. So that when we rest in him, when we repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins and rose again, we are transferred from that darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you understand what you have been saved from, O Christian? Because that judges a lot about how you address what is happening in your life. We live in a fallen world. And we deserve none of what God has given us. So in the hardships of life, we take our hands and we cling with, cold, with white knuckles to the cross. Because that's our hope. That is what we have. That no matter what is happening in this world at this moment, we still have hope. The flip side of that is this. If you have not repented and believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have no hope. This is your best life now. This is it. Your suffering now doesn't get any better. It never gets better. We live in a fallen world where even good people experience trouble, loss, and pain. But through the gospel of grace... There's an immediate change of the reality of our consequences that happen. It, it, doesn't, it places us in a, a larger story. We are not blind to our world's present brokenness, okay? We're not blind. We see it. Nor are we fatalists about our future. 
Rather, we are followers of Jesus, graciously incorporated into his redeeming purposes for his world. The gospel changes our question. Instead of asking, why did this happen to me? Who is to blame? We begin to ask, where is God in this situation? What is he up to? Why may he glor- why, how may his glory ultimately shine through? And we do all of this through tears. And we cry. And we encourage one another. Only the gospel does this. Grace leads us to ask more vertical questions than horizontal ones. Only the gospel of eternal, of, has, has eternal purposes and hope beyond this world that enables us to accept suffering as a normal part of the Christian life. For the ultimate suffering, condemnation, and separation from the Father in hell has been, has, has been undergone by Jesus in our place. That means that all of our, that all of our those who are in Christ's current suffering in this life can only be by the loving hand of a caring father who is training us to walk with him and enabling others touched by our lives to do that the same way. As they walk through his broken world with us. See, God doesn't just call you to himself. He calls you into a family. And this is something that blows my mind. When someone says, hey, this is going on in my life, but please don't share it with anyone. I'm like, How can we encourage you? How can we walk with you through this broken world? How can we remind you of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you if we don't know? Further, you're robbing me of the ability to grow as I watch what God is doing in your life. See, living by faith means this, believing that God has his purposes. They are hidden from us, and faith means that we believe they are good. Living by faith means believing that God himself is better than what life can give to you now and better than what death can take from you later. Living by faith means utterly being in utter love with all that God is for us now and will be for us beyond the grave. Faith loves God more than life. Faith loves God more than family. Faith loves God more than my job, more than my retirement, my ministry, or building a bigger dream house, although I've got a pretty good dream house right now. Making my first million, which will never happen. (laughs) Or avoiding pain. So, here is one way for you to be a gift to the world. Love God more than life. Walk by faith in his son Jesus Christ and pour your life out for others. See, this even comes into our evangelism, how we tell other people about Jesus Christ. That's why it is important that when we relieve the distress of those who are suffering, because we are called to do that, we must also show them that their greatest need isn't the temporary, but the eternal. 
Our goal is to show them that God himself is better than what life can give to you now and better than what death can take from you later. We cry out to God in our pain and in our suffering, but, but be reminded of what God has done for you, that you, O Christian, have been saved by his amazing grace. Surround yourself with people who will remind you for you. I can't do it myself. That's why I have friends. That's why I have a friend who's struggling with reminding himself about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how I will go and remind him of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The best thing for someone to know is that there is a holy God who made it possible for them to be made right before him, that he is better than what life can give to you now and better than what death can take from you later. God calls us to faithfully wait based on the knowledge of who he is. Let me pray. Father God, we just thank you for who you are and how you have revealed yourself in your word. Lord, I pray that we would continue to remind each other of who you are and what you have done for us. May may you, by your spirit, Lord, continue to, to stretch us and to grow us. May we be a people who live by faith, being reminded of who you are and what you've done for us through, through your son, Jesus Christ. May you be glorified. Amen.